Hello, welcome to Kitchen Radio. That, of course, was Paul Kelly with uh, Thought I Was Asleep, and that's from the Foggy Highway album. You are, of course, listening to Kitchen Radio. My name is Rita Catoni, and this is 8 102.1 FM in Tennant Creek and in Alice Springs. Kitchen Radio is a fortnightly radio show. It's a conversation, really, where I bring in a special guest, and we just talk food for about an hour. Today, my special guest is uh, Nina Chebnowski. We're going to talk about a few things, but we're going to talk around the theme of nostalgic cooking and around sort of nostalgia in the kitchen. Welcome, Nina. What's what's your understanding of the term nostalgia? I think for me, nostalgia is about those feelings you get when you possibly create something in the kitchen and it conjures up something from your childhood and honouring the past. But the focus of today's show is this pile of books that are in front of Nina and I and they're really old cookbooks and they range from the year we, th- we worked out the earliest one was probably, well the first edition would have been 1905 and the later ones are probably the early 1960s. Nina, can you tell me about this haul of books? Like, Where did you find these amazing cookbooks? Well, I found these at an op shop in coastal Victoria, Port Lonsdale, and it was, you know, a small box of books, a file of handwritten recipes. They were all on scraps of paper, almost translucent paper written in beautiful cursive writing. So I know it was someone older and it was, I guess, their collection and they'd been untouched. So these are really quite old and... I, I just sort of thought, you know, someone's discarded them. Someone in their family thought they were in a value and I saw it and I thought I'd hit the mother load. Mm-hmm. I just loved them. Um, newspaper clippings, a few brochures and th- probably about three substantial cookbooks. Yeah. Do you think we could safely say they're all, they all belong to the one person? I'd say so, yes. Yep. Yeah, that's my feeling as well. I mean, it'd be good to describe these cookbooks because, I mean, because they range in, in years of publication, they do have some different physical features. But for me, one of the sort of outstanding features of all of them is that there's not really high publishing values in the books themselves. Like all the recipes are just all um, straight printed, you know, black print on paper. Some of them are a lower quality paper. One of them has got a few glossy coloured pages in the middle of it. I think it's the Croft Stall Anniversary Cookbook. But they're actually just advertisements. So, yeah, it, they're, they're an interesting, like physically I think they're interesting. Um, some of them are falling apart. And I think that the covers, you can tell what year they are from the covers. The Croft Stall's uh, cookbook, it's just got three colours on it and it's got a particular lithographic style to it, a woman holding a pot. And then, of course, there's the our cookery book by Flora Pell and that's just quite beautiful. That's like a burgundy cover with almost hand-drawn uh, text on it and there's a woman uh, with a white frilly apron and she's holding a pot of or a plate of something round with spots in it. It could be a chicken or it could be a pudding. And then there's the PWMC cookbook, which is, I think, maybe the publication was in the 60s. And we know that's in the 60s, PWMU cookery book. Um, that's a mistake I made. But why we know it's in the 60s is because the front cover has... Um, some of this beautiful Pyrex uh, cookware that had patterns on it and that was very much a 60s cookware. But we're going to actually go through the, the three, mainly the three cookbooks. Just before we move on, is there anything else you'd like to mention, something that all these cookbooks have in common, Nina? 
Oh, look, I think the main themes coming through these is there's a hell of a lot of cakes and slices and puddings. And Rita and I had both been talking about how everything just had this common theme of butter, sugar, eggs, lots of sugar. Some of the meats are quite, I guess, what we'd consider old-fashioned cuts. And the way they were cooked was really interesting too because some of them were broiled and steamed and fried. So meats, an abundance of fruits and a million ways to cook a fruit. But all the cookbooks had household hints as well. So I think it was all about economy and making, you know, whatever they had go a bit further. And addressing the... I think they're interesting because they address a need and they really reflect a time, a time in history. Yeah, and the thing is that they're all-encompassing, these cookbooks, so they're very much about a home Absolutely, well, like yep. keeping, keeping a household together rather than just about cooking. I mean, the other thing I, I notice about them is the actual layout of the recipes are quite interesting because the ingredients are quite hard to read because they're not sort of laid out in a list and even the methodology is very straightforward. Like there's no degrees to the ovens. It's like a hot, a moderate or a, a low oven. And as, as a contemporary reader of this, I've got to make quite a few jumps if I'm trying to follow any of these recipes. You know, they're not like an Otto Lenghi or a Beatrix Bakes cookbook, which gives you every single detail of what you have to do. A lot well. don't have any temperature setting at all. Yes, yeah. Really basic. So which one should we start with, Nina? We should oh, start I think with... Flora. Okay. <laughs> a favourite. So this, this yeah. book sold for one and six. I don't know how much that is in um, current days. It's a really tattied, tattered book, the, the bindings coming off. It's quite a comprehensive book. I think, Rita, you know a bit more about Flora's history. But she went through everything from how to cook. The salads and sandwiches section is pretty interesting, along with the invalid cookery, which does reflect a time, and we've started to call it invalid cookery. So I think that's <laughs> we should um, we touch on that a little bit. That, yeah. I'm going to give listeners a bit of an overview on Flora because that was a really popular publication, and Flora was probably our first celebrity chef. That first cookbook came out in 1916. She was a teacher of cooking in Melbourne. She was born in 1874. And she actually wrote this in her own time. And it became so popular that she was able to actually live off the royalties. So she was very much um, able to be a very independent woman. She was unmarried until she was in her 60s. And while the books very much, I suppose, are all about the idea of, of running a household and, you know, what women's responsibilities are, and there are some points, in fact, she even talks against the idea of that women should have careers. In fact, she, she lived her life quite separately to those ideas. She was very much an independent woman. But the other great thing about Flora Powell's recipes is that they included alcohol. And she got herself into trouble with the Women's Temperance Society because, heaven forbid, she actually used half a cup of brandy. So that got her into all sorts of trouble. But she also believed that, like, this idea that nationhood started in the kitchen and there's photos of her in one of her cooking kitchens and they're strewn with, like, national flags. So she was very interesting, but she was also a little bit of a contradiction. Her books were published 24 times between 1916 and they continued to be published um, up to the 1950s. And there's other people who know a lot more about Flora Powell, but there was a, um, there was a talk given, uh, in I can't remember where, 
But a whole lot of people had written in and talked about their experience with the Flora Pell cookbook. And it was obviously given to most young women when they got married as one of, you know, as, as a, I suppose, a foundation to, to creating a, a household. Um, or Nina, is there anything in the Flora Pell cookbook that, that grabs your attention? Is there anything here that you would cook today? Having a look at this book, I'm thinking maybe I could revisit some of these puddings. I wouldn't remember the last time I made a pudding, but it's a winter thing. And Flora's probably got about 10 pages of puddings in here. I think a lot of them are steamed, but from ginger pudding, date pudding, currant pudding, there's a lot of dried fruits, boiled apple pudding, a date roly-poly, a jam pudding. And I, I really love cooking steamed puddings in winter. And I suppose that's where the idea of today's show came from. Like this is the second time I've done a show on nostalgic cooking. And it's always in winter where I'm wanting to, I suppose, revisit some of those foods of my childhood. And, and a lot of them are around puddings in winter. Shall we move on to the next cookbook? I want to talk about the Presbyterian Women's Missionary Union cookbook. Now, that's published a little bit later. That's one in the 1960s. I think the very first cookbook was published in 1905, and this was a republication. The Presbyterian Women's Missionary Union of Victoria, and they worked uh, across Australia, Korea, New Hebrides, Indonesia, India, and they worked with the Aboriginal people. They had four stations on the Gulf of Carpentaria, Ernabella and Frigong, Frigon and in the Musgrave Ranges and Mwanjum in WA. So they were obviously a group of women who saw themselves as missionaries, but they published this same book, the PWMU Cookery Book. I mean, one of my favourite things in this particular cookbook is the salads. They're also not salads that we would think of salads today. And I'm sure, Rita, they're probably not salads you'd want to recreate or perhaps you would. Oh, no, I, I love. For me, the salads are the best part of this. Salads and salad dressings. Now, similar to Flora Pell, Flora Pell did a tour of the US and she came back with some really interesting ideas about having to have salads on the table and having to have more vegetables. And she, she talked about a balanced diet. But this is the back to the PWMU cookbook. Their ideas about salads, they start off really good, which is a perfect salad looks cool and inviting and the ingredients are blended with skill, making it delicious to eat and of real dietetic value. Fruit and vegetables must be of the freshest and best quality. Mix salads with a wooden or silver spoon. The bowl may be rubbed with a clove of garlic. Do not add dressing to salad until required or the salad will, will lose its crispness. Dry lettuce by shaking in a cloth. So they're all things I think that are very much consistent with making a salad. But then you get to the recipes and then you go like, wow, my, my favourite one is one called Heavenly Salad. I'm going to read it out because it's just so wacky. So it's one package of lemon jelly crystals, one can of tomato soup. So just two ingredients to begin with. So you heat the soup and you're going to pour it over the jelly crystals. When cool, add four ounces of cream cheese, a third of a cup of chopped celery, a third of a cup of chopped onion, a quarter of a cup of chopped green pepper, one cup of mayonnaise. You stir together and set. And this makes eight moulds. Nina, are you going to be going home and making this salad? No, I'll wait for you to do that, Rachel. <laughs> 
there's a lot of fussing around in these salads. Like it really does feel like it's the early days of salads um, before there was an influence of, I suppose, Mediterranean diets in, in Australia and they just really had no idea what they were talking about. And a real sense of experimentation. Um, there's another recipe for a banana Waldorf salad and a peanut fan salad. So, you know, bananas in salads, I guess, yeah. you know, it's a thing. Um, I suppose the other thing about all these cookbooks, I mean, you mentioned those three ingredients of like butter, sugar, flour. Obviously, there's more ingredients than that, but the ingredients were very basic. Just the fact that there's a, a reusing of jelly crystals and a tin of tomato soup, you know. It's not using like avocado or fresh asparagus. There's none of those types of ingredients in any of these cookbooks. So well, very much pre-food revolution, I would say. I don't know if asparagus and avocados were invented yet. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's this one page or this one section at the back of the PWMU cookbook for invalid cooking. So Nina, you really loved the invalid cooking sections of a lot of these books. Can you tell me what appealed to you about the invalid sections? Oh, look, I, I did love that section because one, I mean, out of all of these recipes and throughout the books... I had a bit of a laugh, like some of the names of things are just hilarious. But also the invalid cooking is, there's a real sadness around it because I think, you know, post-war there were a lot of people with trauma. You know, we didn't have the medical technology that we do now and people were nursed. And some of these recipes are really unusual for the invalid or invalid as we like to call it. You know, the one recipe there that I really liked, and it is something that I would still cook, which is barley water. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I've been asking myself this question, like, why would you go back and use these old cookbooks when, in fact, you can go online and probably get a recipe for barley water and it's possibly easier to find. I mean, I, I find one of the consistent features of these cookbooks is it's actually, they're quite hard to find the recipes that you want. But I did go online and I found an almost identical recipe for barley water. So I do think a lot of the recipes still are available through a Google search, but it's not quite the experience of um, looking through an old cookbook. I'll, um, I'll give you an example of some of these recipes. that are... So they have things like, well, the barley water, beef tea. This is the invalid cooking. A black currant tea, gruel. And I thought that was just something in an yeah, old prison movie, yeah. Le Miserable. But gruel is actually oatmeal and milk or water, sugar. The other one is an egg flip. And it's funny, but I grew up on egg flips. After school, we could have an egg flip that was just milk, a raw egg, I think a bit of vanilla and nutmeg. and sugar. Yep. Yeah, very yummy, an egg flip. And, like, we would look at that now and go, oh, raw egg, got to be pretty careful about that. But I remember as a kid, like, egg flips were really lovely. Well, maybe we'll go on to that third cookbook, which is the Crofts Cookbook, which is the 35th anniversary of the Crofts uh, Cookbook. And the original one of that was published, I think, in 1905. And the Croft Cookbook is interesting because... I find it's almost more of a catalogue. Crofts were a grocery store in Victoria and the whole... Look, there's more advertisements almost than there are recipes in it and it's quite hard to find the recipes. Nina, do you want to read out some of the uh, advertisements? Oh, look, there's one on every second page. One for a thing called Vitamite, which looks like an early version of Vegemite and it's a pure concentrated extract of yeast. It's all Australian an ad for liver pills, for hams and bacons, 
Jacks for twines and mats and matting, kangaroo brand twine. Yeah, I mean, that cookbook's interesting because the advertisements aren't just food, like there's all sorts of things. But obviously this was also like a way of advertising products. The Croft cookbook I really like because there's this one page at the end which was obviously used a great deal, which has got stains on it. And that's the biscuits page. And that would probably be the only one that I think I would use as well. So Rita, I'd guess I'd say you'd be making the Italian tea biscuits. Oh, I quite like the Italian tea biscuits, actually. Nut biscuits, soda biscuits, coconut biscuits, puffed wheat biscuits. Nina, would your mother have had any of these cookbooks at home when you were growing up? Probably not of this era, a little bit later. I think also, too, there weren't a lot of cookbooks from this era until the Women's Weekly really found their stride, which is probably more in the late 60s and 70s. I think a lot of people had these. They'd tear out a recipe from the newspaper or they'd swap recipes, and I recall my mum having a similar file of just torn-out recipes and shared recipes. You know, my mother had this one called the Showers Australian Cookery Book. She must have bought it new, but it was actually a new edition of one of these really old cookbooks. I used that quite a lot as as a child, and I know she had grown up with that particular cookbook as well. I still have my The Women's Weekly Cookbook for my 18th birthday, and (laughs) it's some of the classics. The, The cakes and biscuits and slices are still really good. There is a nostalgia. I really love the international section that has things like Hungarian goulash or fried rice or... Um, chop suey, we found. Chop suey, of course. Yes, yep. look, I've still got my day-to-day cookery book there, which is one that I, I used when I was like doing home economics at school because, of course, I had to do home economics. Did you do home economics? No, I didn't. Okay, yeah, no. I, any chance to cook from a very young age. Nina, what about these handwritten notes that we've got here? They're quite beautiful and there's some also some sort of some newspaper clippings you've got one in front of you which was uh, I think in maybe the Croft cookbook yeah this just sort of slipped out of the book and it's actually from 1945 February the 5th so the title says preserve fruit surplus without sugar and just the first couple of lines, it says, housewives accustomed to preserving surplus fruits at this time of season for use later in the year now find themselves severely handicapped by the lack of sugar. And then it goes on to say also the lack of jars. So, you know, wartime. People were preserving, people were, you know, trying to preserve without sugar, probably pickling. What about some of these other handwritten recipes? They're quite beautiful and they all look like they're written on the same hand as well. Yeah, there's probably like over a dozen of them, all for cakes, slices and puddings and cakes. They're on really transparent paper. Some are just slips, a few notes of a recipe, but others are just completely full hand, cursive writing in beautiful pen and ink. They're a work of art in themselves. I was thinking about the Crofts cookery book as well as this one here, the McAlpin's Test Recipe Kitchens. And these are dissimilar to some of those cookbooks you get at the moment if you go into like Woolworths I think have got their own publication obviously they're a lot flashier than any of these these books but the idea is that you're either giving back to the reader or you're using these recipe books as a way of getting customers to to buy you know additional products yeah so the McAlpin was a flower brand and I think a lot of promotion to the brand but yeah 
they're actually really great recipes in both of the they're really slim they're stapled in the middle they're a touch of color <laughs> and they've actually got photos and in this one it's the first one where they've actually laid out the recipe in a way it's a lot easier to understand where they've got the ingredients at the top in a in a list and it's bolded and then they've got the method underneath so already this one which i would suggest is a little bit later than any of the others they're starting to get a little I suppose that they're just making these recipe books easier to follow and maybe the recipe books themselves are, are functioning in a different way than some of these early cookbooks. Yeah, you can see the were. evolution of the recipe that uh, those early ones have maybe three ingredients, no instructions, just really mix, bake, whereas these later ones have a lot more instruction and a bit around presentation too. Yeah. What drew you to these cookbooks? Oh, look, I think that they were discarded Someone didn't want them and I thought they were just fantastic and I think they speak of a time. You know, we've got really sophisticated cooking practices now but that we still rely on the basics and I love that we can sort of map how recipes change, how food has changed, what we've been exposed to, what was available in those times and what they did with it. Yeah. You know, there would, there'd be meals and the next section is what to do with leftovers yeah, yeah. And I think they're all pre-food revolution. Absolutely, books, yeah. Which is what's really interesting about them because there was this point in the 70s where there was this massive kind of food revolution and uh, household sort of menus became quite different. But this all speaks to, I suppose, a simpler time in the kitchen where there was less access to ingredients and there was that post-war idea and post-depression idea of just you have to sort of make good with what you've got. I think it was putting a meal on the table. I think there was being economic was a really big factor and there wasn't a lot of experimentation Absolutely unless you can experiment not. with butter, sugar, flour. <laughs> There's a lovely recipe in one of these books for condensed milk ice cream. Oh, which, and I can pot. absolutely remember the condensed milk ice cream. Look, we're going to go for a little bit of a show break. Um, we're going to come back with some recipes. We're going to have a listen to A Natural Woman, which was, of course, written by Carol King, but this is the original release by Aretha Franklin. That was Aretha Franklin singing You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. That was chosen because we're doing a radio show today on nostalgic cooking. But also there's this kind of womanly theme in all of these cookbooks. Nina, would you agree with that? I think every picture has a woman cooking. I think it appeals <laughs> some of the ads in these very Pamphlets. womanly, aren't they? Yes. yes, what to cook for your man when he comes home. Absolutely. And, um, yep, how to prepare food. Because, of course, we are looking at this hall of old cookbooks that my guest Nina Chevnowski has, has brought into, not the studio, but actually into my home. This is a pre-record, so um, you might hear some ambient noises in the background. Nina, in all these cookbooks, and I suppose we're talking about some of the food of our childhood and maybe even the food prior to our childhood because some of these recipes definitely predate the 60s and the 70s. Did you come across any recipes here that might have made its way into contemporary cooking? Yeah, surprisingly, uh, there's quite a few. I'd say everything from some of the soups, um, some of those rich sort of minestrone-type soups, pea and ham soup. So yeah, pea and ham soup is one that seems to like um, defy time, I suppose. There's always a time and place for pea and ham soup. I mean, the basic recipes for pastry remain. Some of the puddings. Look, one thing I still make is a uh, lemon delicious. Mm -hmm. 
particularly this time of year in Alice with an abundance of citrus. It's a nice winter thing, but that one will never go out of fashion. No, no. And it's interesting to think about what are the foods that have gone out of fashion and those that have remained, like corned beef. Like corned beef is something that still remains quite popular, really. I will even cook corned beef and um, roasts. Always seems to be a time and a place for a roast. But I do think some of those sweet puddings no longer have a place in our current menu because a lot of those puddings were about, you know, feeding up your ki- your kids, really. You know, if you didn't have enough to feed them, you could at least, you know, pack them up with some, uh, you know, a bit of sugar and flour, basically. You know, within my family, there was often a, you know, a chocolate pudding or a bread and butter pudding, and that was often a, a way of appeasing your, your children's appetites. My memories are that we usually had a dessert when I was a young kid. Yeah, me too. And I think most families did. And it was either something really simple or, you know, tinned fruit and cream. Yeah, whereas for me now, dessert is the exception. It's certainly not the norm. I think the 70s changed all that. I think my weight changed all that. (laughs) I think when sugar became evil... To lose weight was to not have desserts. Honestly, it's the thing that drives me crazy. Trying to you know keep my weight down is that I have to stop myself from cooking sweet things like cakes and puddings. Things I actually love cooking, unless I've got someone there to share them with. And they're so good. Look, I do remember that time when sugar became the enemy. Yeah, um, probably the early seventies and. My mum had read a book called Sugar Blues and made I think she made all of us read it and it was just poison. So, yeah. you know, there was a big shift after that. And also to busier lives where you have a meal but you don't need dessert. Yeah, I actually don't remember sugar ever going out of fashion in our house. Can you believe that? Could have been because I grew up in uh, the, the cane fields of North Queensland. Hey, Nim, do you know what I'd really love to do? I would really like to share some recipes this afternoon around some of the recipes that you might still cook that might have, you know, that might actually be in some of these cookbooks. Mm-hmm. The first one that I heard you talk about, which was one that I've got no familiarity with whatsoever, is smoked cod in white sauce. Can you tell me about this dish? Oh, yeah. When I was a kid, I loved that. I grew up in Melbourne, cold winters. So mum would make this smoked cod. I don't know where she sourced the cod from, but it was it was quite a firm cod. It was a bit yellow looking, so that must have come through the smoking process. And she'd make a, a white sauce, uh, quite a thin one from memory, and with parsley. And the the cod would sort of reconstitute, and they were fillets of cod so you small know. fillets like more than one fillet in the dish yeah yeah so quite i mean you know it was a big pot of uh this smoked cod because you also come from a large family am i right you're right how yep. many children uh six okay so your mum's cooking for eight people she's cooking for eight she i don't think she had a lot of joy in cooking it was just <laughs> putting a meal on the table look also too i think that was a bit of a, a catholic thing fish on friday nights yeah absolutely if it wasn't the fish and chip shop it was the smoked cod and i don't know at what point we stopped having having the cod but it was a when we were talking about nostalgia i thought yeah i used to love that what did you like about it so let me just go back so it would she would have like prepared the cod in maybe milk beforehand or do you think she put it straight in the I, baking dish I think she would have saved a lot of time and by just putting it straight into the white sauce. 
Okay, and so she's made a white sauce with cheese in it or just a pretty straight white sauce? I think a fairly standard white sauce. Okay, salt and pepper. Salt and, and pepper, parsley. parsley. Curly leaf parsley, I can imagine at it this point. It would have to be, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was baked or just served like that? I think it was done in a saucepan on the stove. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow, this is basic. Yep, really basic. Yeah. Probably served with potatoes. Um, Boiled potatoes or, or mashed potatoes. I think we all love the Peas? mashed potatoes. Anything green there? Uh, there would have been something green on the plate. <laughs> <laughs> maybe the, just the parsley. Um, the white, the white and the green. Uh, carrots maybe for a bit of colour? Oh, yeah, possibly just boiled carrots. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't recall vegetables a lot. Of, <laughs> I mean, we always had vegetables, but I don't recall how they were cooked because... Usually I think they were boiled and yeah. then, you know, the discovery of a steamer many years later. But there was something about that recipe that it was, um, oh, it's kind of creamy tasting and really warming. Yeah, I can imagine that that would have some appeal. I'm a big fan of, say, cauliflower cheese as well. And that's not dissimilar. It's just that we're replacing the cod with cauliflower and putting um, cheese and breadcrumbs on the top. Yeah, I still do that. Me too. I did that the other night. I'm a big fan of cauliflower cheese. And especially when you can cook it and whack it in the oven with the cheese sauce on so it's done. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to look at, looking at adaptations with recipes. So for me, how I've changed cauliflower cheese is I bake my cauliflower now rather than steam it. And that means you retain a little bit more flavour and you've got a bit more control over the, the texture because the problem with cauliflower cheese is because you're cooking your cauliflower twice, you can very easily overcook your cauliflower and that's something you really don't want to do with cauliflower cheese. I think that's why a lot of people have not liked cauliflower. It's just been... Overcooked. Boiled. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's a hard one to get that right texture as well because you don't want it undercooked but you certainly don't want it overcooked. Now, what about pea and ham soup? You mentioned that earlier and as as something that has survived through the ages. How would you make pea and ham soup? Well, I I really love it because it's really forgiving. So I usually start off with a ham hock or bacon bones and sometimes a combination of the two. I'll put them in a pot uh, with, after frying up some onion, put in a bay leaf, lots of carrot and celery and I used to be a bit fussier about the legumes so it would be a yellow split pea but now I put in pretty much anything so predominantly yellow split peas sometimes some lentils sometimes some beans as well but um yeah I do really love the way the yellow pea breaks down and it thickens it up Mm. and that's a recipe I probably grew up on and I still make in winter and do you take all the pork um, meat off the bones and put that through or do you just use those bones for flavour? On the ham hock I would take... Or either ham hock or bacon bones, yep. Yeah, no, I'd put the meat through. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just sort of falls off the bone yeah. um, and get rid of the, the outside, the skin and the bone. Yeah, yeah, that's a bit yucky. And it's a... I don't know. It's a a soup that is really lovely in winter. Wouldn't have it any other time but the middle of winter. And it is such a simple one to cook. I mean, I actually use a Stephanie Alexander recipe. She just puts everything in, you know, the celery, carrot, onions with the water and the split peas or the yellow. I tend to use green split peas and then just boils it up. And you're right, you don't even need a blender really with pea and ham soup because, in fact, it all just disintegrates. So you don't need to, um, you know, blend that to to get that consistency why do you go for the green the green peas it's because i add frozen green peas at the end i think it's a visual 
thing. But I, look, flavour-wise, they're exactly the same. I wouldn't think you get one. There's much difference in flavour. But I do add thyme as a herb. That's the, the herb I would add. I would have bay leaves as well when I'm cooking it up, but obviously I take out the bay leaves. The other difference I, I, I make is I don't put much meat in the soup because I don't actually like big chunks of meat in the soup and I don't like too many inconsistencies in terms of texture with soup if it's soup I just want it to be soup and I don't want to be dealing with um, large chunks of meat so I I don't you know use a lot of the meat actually in the soup I, I hear complaints from you know that the men folk in my family about the lack of meat in the pea and ham soup but can't please everyone no they can't. <laughs> I cook for my own taste not for other people's taste the other one which I have talked about but is uh, corned beef how do you do do you cook corned beef I think I've probably only ever really made it once. I do remember it when I was young and I quite liked it. Yeah. And I think that's another cut of meat that cooked well is great and then you can do more with it afterwards. Yeah, like I, I would cook corned beef in winter probably, you know, once every two or three weeks. We, my mum as was Australian so we did grow up with corned beef, always with a white sauce that was cooked, that had the onions that you've cooked up with the corned beef chopped up through them. So I suppose the first thing is you boil up your corned beef according to, you know, the weight of it. And a lot of recipes will call for like vinegar and brown sugar in the water. I sometimes do that, but I also add pomegranate molasses. I know that's really kind of out there, but in terms of adding a contemporary um, element to it, I do that because pomegranate molasses is both sweet and sour. And it has a depth to it. So that so, would substitute the vinegar yeah. and the acid. So I'll often add pomegranate molasses and I do put bay leaves, black peppercorns and I add juniper berries because I really like the flavour of juniper berries. So they're all things mm-hmm. you, that are just there to flavour, give the meat a little bit of extra flavour. Um, obviously you've got onions in there which you're going to pull out later on to put in your white sauce. Always whole jacket potatoes in okay, there yeah, yeah. Um, and I actually add um, whole carrots as well now I would always serve that with peas with butter I love the way you've got the the color palette <laughs> happening there always thinking <laughs> color palette and the other thing I love about corned beef which is possibly one of the reasons why I I actually buy it is because I then use it the next day to make Reuben sandwiches and I'll go out of my way to make sure I've got a nice rye bread and I've got all the right cheeses sauerkraut. and sauerkraut I've always got homemade sauerkraut so corned beef is one of those things I make where I'm also thinking about what to do with the leftovers. So it's interesting. There are quite a few dishes where you're always thinking, or I'm always thinking, oh, that would be great because then I can do this with, with leftovers. And I think that's a, a bit of a throwback to some of these recipes. I agree, yeah. A lot of these recipes were, you know, making croquettes and patties and... You know, making something go a really long way. Absolutely. Yeah, it's that frugal idea that to be a good householder, you also need to be frugal as well as be a good cook. All these all these attributes you needed to have to be, you know, a good woman in the kitchen. Yeah, and look, surprisingly, so few ingredients, really small kitchens. Yeah. And I, I'm actually impressed with a lot of these old books because they did a lot with very little. Absolutely. I mean, they, there's a million variations on some things, but... Um, I like all the mock things, you know, the oh. mock duck or the mock this. So that's all about how much can you do with, like, breadcrumbs, onion, cheese and parsley, basically. In these books I saw there was a mock oyster, a mock turtle, whatever that means, mock duck and mock goose. <laughs> Sounds delicious. The mock duck was made out of mutton 
And the goose was actually out of uh, livers and breadcrumbs. And I think that's the other thing. They used a lot of offal and disguised it yeah. or even renamed it and rebranded those not-so-appealing cuts of... Um, Meat that we would probably never use or eat today unless you're into sort of nose-to-tail eating. Exactly. And there's a few things I think you said, oh, what would you never eat out of those? <laughs> and um, I did pick out a few recipes and they were like deviled kidneys and boiled mutton, ox tongue, tripe is another one, sheep's tongue and casserole of mutton. So a lot of mutton but and anything swimming in aspic. So they're probably things I would never, ever touch. But, you know, nose to tail if um, you're creative and have a good recipe. Look, for our final recipe, I would really like to talk about Lemon Delicious because I think Lemon Delicious is one of those desserts that just survives the ages. Yes. And its, it's list of ingredients are quite simple. Its method can be a little bit complicated, but I'd really like to go through your recipe for Lemon Delicious. Okay, yeah. Look, I pretty much use the Stephanie Alexander one. I tend to cut down on the sugar. I love a really lemony experience. Um, I'd probably up the lemon rind. And also, you know, we get a lot of citrus here in Alice. Last week I experimented with a gluten-free version. Not quite as good. I'm assuming most people would know a lemon delicious. It's good to just go through the, if if you've got the uh, recipe in front of you. So Lemon Delicious is a pudding and it works its magic in the oven. It's really easy and you don't need many ingredients for it. It's basically lemon. Before we say the ingredients, there's something about Lemon Delicious I would like to say, which is what makes it delicious, which is it's actually got two elements. Um, So you've got a little cakey element at the top and then there's a self-sourcing element at the bottom. Is that your understanding of Lemon Delicious? Absolutely right. But let's go through the ingredients. So obviously we've got lemons. Are we squeezing them? We zest a couple of lemons and we get the juice from the lemons. Um, What, two, three lemons? Yeah, I tend to – I love that zesty lemon, so I will zest more lemons than is required Mm -hmm. and usually put – more juice in, more lemon zest and possibly a bit less sugar because I really like that tang. Mm-hmm. So you kind of, you know, you cream up some butter and sugar and it's very little sugar. It's only about, you know, 60 grams of sugar. Cream those with some egg yolks. Um, so butter, sugar. Eggs, those. Egg yolks, we've like got the, them, yep. Yeah, the trifecta, isn't it? And you're adding <laughs> the zest as well at this point? Uh, yes, yep. Just re- I'm, I'm pretty... Um, easy with this yep um add some flour and milk self-raising flour or plain flour Uh, yeah self-raising it's only a couple of tablespoons and so separately mix some egg whites and that's what gives that sponge on top the real springiness so once you've mixed the other ingredients you fold in egg whites and it's you fold them in really gently so you're keeping your batter quite aerated Mm -hmm. and really you put it It goes into the oven for 45 minutes in a water bath. And I think that's important that it's sort of kept a fairly even temperature. And out it comes. And when it comes out, it has got that lovely sponge on top and lemons, almost like a lemon curd underneath. Yeah, or a custard underneath. Yeah, it's It's quite custardy. And I think it's a really forgiving recipe again. You can add more lemon if you like. Um, yeah, I would say the only time I've been undone with Lemon Delicious, I think, is if I've overcooked it. 
or if I haven't put enough of the water in the water bath and so you end up with like more of a cake and less less of a pudding on it so you, you can't underestimate how important it is to have that water bath to keep those two temperatures um, happening um, can I just add to this because I've found this lemon delicious recipe in a really old gourmet traveler and it was this uh, chef and it was his mother's recipe and I just use it all the time it's it's quite a different recipe and how it, what he does is he beats up egg yolks um, and sugar so no butter in this one so just not separating the eggs so he separates the eggs yes he's got two egg yolks and he's got a whole cup of sugar in this one um, and then he combines both one tablespoon of flour and two tablespoons of self-raising so it's a combination of the two but again not a lot of flour either but he's put a lot of sugar in this um, it's got finely grated rind of two lemons and then a whole half cup of lemon juice but anyway so then he's mixing the lemon rind the lemon juice um, and then it's got melted butter so I, I do like but only a small amount of melted butter and then he mis mixes the um, juice and milk I suppose that liquid mixture with the um, egg yolks and sugar and then, of course, he's beating the egg whites until I think it's mainly soft peaks. You don't want hard peaks. And then, again, you fold that through and you put it in a water bath for about 45 minutes, 180 degrees. And, yeah, the same thing. You have to have that water bath. And I don't think it ever really fails. Yeah, I mean, unless you do what I say, which is that you overcook it. Um, and I think I agree with you. This is one that you just really want to get the balance of sweetness and sour to what you like. And don't ever trust recipes and don't ever trust lemons because every lemon and, and every recipe is different. So that's always one you need to taste it um, as you're cooking. Great. So there's a lot to do there this weekend, Nina. I think we're both going to be making lemon delicious. Do you have a lemon tree? No, I don't, but I've been given a few lemons recently. <laughs> well, I mean, lemons there are in season. Abundance. This is a great yeah. one for Alice Springs. Yeah, a, a fantastic one for Alice Springs. I, I did make it once, and um, it was actually for a, an American friend who had never had it before and didn't thought I was making up the word delicious. I said, oh, I'm okay. making lemon delicious. Lemon delicious. Yeah. She goes, yeah, it is delicious. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> it is, you're right. I it, do love that title that it's, you know, And it is something delicious. you would find in, in any of these amazing old cookbooks we've got in front of us Most today. people's grandmothers would have made lemon delicious, I yeah. think. You know, my mother never made it, but, um, yeah, me and my sisters made lemon delicious. Yeah, we made it, we, we had quite a few disasters as kids on it as well. And then we discovered passion fruit delicious where we had a, a lot more sort of Maybe success. Maybe a bit more of a Queensland thing. Possibly more of a Queensland sled. Um, look, that's about a wrap for today. Before I, I finish the show, Nina, I really love to ask my guests what they're cooking this weekend. So I don't mean to put you on the spot, but do you have any um, plans on this long weekend um, for hanging out in the kitchen? Mm, I've been practising a little with Goslemes and different ingredients and just trying to perfect that... The bread, um, working a little bit with spelt flour. Wow, that's really an interesting one to try and perfect. Have you had, have you, you know, I mean, we talked about this earlier in the show, but it's, you know, it's interesting those things that um, draw you to a particular recipe. Um, and that's what I find difficult with these recipe books today because there's nothing visual. Um, and often what draws me to a recipe is whether or not there's a beautiful photo or if I've eaten that same dish somewhere, whether I've been travelling and I've tasted it and I want to relive that flavour. So have you had really good Goslemme 
somewhere? Oh, I was recently in Melbourne, of course, <laughs> and had a spinach and feta. So I'm doing a variation on that one. So, yeah, I guess because they're just small pockets and trying to cut down on the white flour and introducing different sorts of flours that are maybe a bit more digestible. Yeah, it's nice to do that. I do like experimenting with different flowers. And you? Uh, well, I was given some sawtooth coriander. I had a friend in Darwin last weekend and she asked what she could bring back for me and I said sawtooth coriander. So I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something Thai with that and maybe some pork. And I'm just inspired to do lemon delicious, but I might try it with buckwheat flour, I'm thinking. Mm, okay. Yeah, something for a little bit different, yeah. So, yeah, that's this weekend. Keep those recipes alive. Um, look, I'd like to go out tonight with a final favourite, one that both Nina and I agreed on. And this is a really, this is a really oldie. It's an early Bee Gees um, and it's to love someone. You've been listening to Kitchen Radio on 8CCC 102.1 FM. My name is Rita Katoni. My guest today has been Nina Chemnowski. And stay cooking and have a great long weekend.